Does God see me? Probably a deep question in the subconscious, if not consciousness, of most people. Does God see me? God, the maker of this awesome and frightening and beautiful and complex and both evil and wonderful world. Wow, the maker of all of this, does he, does he see me? Not just in a generic sense or a general sense that God sees what's happening on the planet. I'm here and I'm one of billions does he see me? Parents, remember when your children were young, or they are some of you, they are young now. Or even looking back to when you were a child. What does a little boy or girl do when they start playing a game or creating something artistically or singing or dancing? Who are they looking for? They're looking for... Mom, they're looking for dad. Do you see me? Did you see what I did? Did you look at what I made? Do you see me? Mommy, daddy. Distractions as parents are, are very common. Today, obviously, the smartphone may be the number one distraction. Do we teach our children that... As I'm looking at this and ignoring them, perhaps not intentionally, is this more important than they? But that's not just to come down on the, on the smartphone. When I was a kid, you know, dad's got his nose in the newspaper or just fixated on the football game or other things, the, you know, mom on the phone, whatever, whatever it is. There's, there's many ways that we can be distracted from seeing the people we really do care about the most. Not just knowing that they exist. Not just knowing that they're in the room. But seeing them. Not just seeing what they do and hearing what they say. But knowing them intimately. Like this is a person. This child came into this world. And, and I was blessed to participate in, in the making of this child. And from, you know, genetically, this, he or she is from me as I am from my parents, and, and so forth, do we really see one another? So that question goes to the ultimate Father, God Father, does He see us? In Luke chapter 7, there's a story about Jesus when He was invited to attend a banquet at the home of a Pharisee. And he accepted that invitation, which might seem on the surface kind of odd. If you know anything about Jesus and the Pharisees in, in the Gospels, you know that they were usually at odds. And yet, Jesus, being as gracious as he is, when invited by one of them to come to his home, he accepted the invitation. And so he went to this dinner, and in this Pharisee's home, was a nice meal prepared, and they were reclining at the table. That was their tradition. There was a very low table. They sat on the floor, maybe some, some cushions beneath them. And then a woman came in that everyone in the room knew about. She was a woman that lived in the, in the community that had a, 
let's just say, unsavory reputation. And everyone knew about her. And the first thought across the room was, what's she doing here? Oh, she shouldn't be at this place. The Pharisee's home and with, with this honored guest, Jesus. And she goes to Jesus and she has this, this alabaster perfume and breaks it and pours it all over his feet and weeps and kisses his feet. Foot washing was part of their tradition, but she took it to the next level. The host of the banquet looked at this woman with disdain, even disgust. But he's also looking at Jesus, thinking, if this man really is a prophet, why is he not angry at her? Why, why is he allowing her to do this? Jesus, knowing his thoughts, told him a, a brief parable. But then he looked at the, at the host of the banquet, this Pharisee, and asked this question. Do you see this woman? He didn't see her. He saw a reputation. He saw a label that's been slapped on her by pretty much everyone in the community. And, that, and he left it right there. She is only that to me. I don't want to see her for who she really is deep down because uh, I can only see the trouble. I can only see the sin. I can only see the things that I don't want to deal with. And it's far easier to slap a label and distance myself from her than it is to see her. All of us, in a sense, are, are like that woman. And quite often we believe that, that God doesn't want to see us. That God has labeled us because of our failures. And even if they don't measure up to sins that other people know about, somewhere deep inside of my heart and mind, I know that, well, I've messed up a lot. And I just feel like a failure. So what does God see in me? Oh, it can't be good. If God sees me at all, what does he see? Now, what does that have to do with this morning's reading from Philippians? Let's look. The third chapter of Philippians, Paul begins by saying this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. How can I have confidence that God sees me? This is really the core motivation in pretty much every religion, because religion and religions have, have this in common, they believe in some sense of a higher power or higher powers or something, something bigger than us that we have to try to get the attention of it or him or her or them. And somehow that, that when, when God or the gods see us, see me, they see something good that we can then connect because if indeed God is bigger and more powerful and has ultimate authority over us, then we have reason to fear, don't we? 
we have reason to, to, to doubt and reason to feel like we don't measure up. So what can we do to have that God see us differently? And how can we have confidence that our attempts, that our worship, that our obedience is going to be accepted by this God or these gods? That's what religion has done throughout history. Trying to have confidence before God. So this is what Paul is addressing here. How can I have confidence that God sees me? Now, of course, Paul was a Jew and Paul learned the law of Moses and the ways of God expressed through the law of Moses. And eventually that law led to prophets and those prophets led to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he came and lived and died and rose again. That's the message. That's the gospel that to believe in him is now a new way after generation upon generation of trying to appease God through the law God knowing all along it wasn't going to work, but we had to learn the hard way because we're people. So eventually, Jesus comes and shows a different path. In this first section that I just read, the first four verses or so, he has this word confidence. So we don't put our confidence in the flesh. Now, in this writing, he's talking about circumcision. It's part of the law of Moses. It's a very cherished part of the law of Moses, the sense of this you have to do. On the eighth day, you circumcise your son. That's the way it's going to be always. And, and to this day, it's practiced by most Jews. So, when the gospel of Jesus Christ went out, of course, Jesus himself being a Jew, all his disciples being Jewish, this was part of their heritage, part of their culture, part of their beliefs. And yet Jesus is now revealing to them something different, something better, something that, that goes beyond law and rule keeping. Even the most cherished rules like Sabbath and sacrifice. So Jesus is, is giving them confidence, calling them into a confidence based on something different than our appeasement to rules, than our obedience to, to the ways that they were very comfortable with and used to. So as other Jews began to believe in Jesus, and it wasn't very many of them, to be honest, in the overall scheme, the overall picture, but as others began to embrace Jesus as Messiah, they started to try to insert the law into Christianity or the ways of Jesus. So in effect, they're saying, yes, we believe Jesus was the Messiah. Yes, we believe he lived, died, and rose again for us to forgive our sins, praise God. Now that enables us to go back to the law and do better. <laughs> That's not the gospel. And yet it was so hard of them to let go. And so as the gospel spread for everyone and as the rest of the world, what they would call Gentiles, began to also embrace this message of salvation through Jesus Christ. There was now tension. Well, on the one hand, hey, it's great. You're believing too. Good. This is a good thing. But now you have to take care of these laws, and, and one of them is circumcision. And without getting too graphic, all the guys are like, say what? <laughs> Why would we have to do that? 
And Paul fights against that. Paul wrote the entire book of Galatians to fight that. But in the bigger picture, it's just the idea that in order to have confidence before God, in order for God to see you as righteous, not only do you need Jesus, but you need appeasement to law. And Paul is fighting against that. That's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh and and, and is, is really coming down hard on that teaching. Now, that may not be our issue today, but we still have a tendency, even as as followers of Jesus, to do the same thing. When we say, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and and we come to him in faith, and, and, and we're saved, praise God. Oh, by the way, now you have to do this, 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 and this. Well, then we're adding to salvation. Now, the result of Mine and yours, uh, mine and your coming to Jesus begins a path of, of transformation as we continually open ourselves to, to his ways and, and, and learn. And, you know, it, it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. But we keep learning, we keep growing in that way. But if we start adding things to salvation through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, faith in that, then we're doing the same thing as what these were called Judaizers, those that believed that that all people had to be circumcised if they really want to follow, follow God. For example, all Christians, if you're really a Christian, you have to adhere to one particular political party or the other or vote according to one particular party or the other. If you're really a believer, that's adding to the gospel. That's inserting something that's not there. And, and that's just one example. We, we do that because somewhere inside us is still this idea that for God to see me, and to see me in the right light, then I have to do something to to make myself look good, to make myself look better, to make myself look as if I am somehow earned or or worthy of what he's done for me. And it's not about that. So our confidence is not in the flesh, not in what we do ourselves, whatever sets of rules we might be using, that's not the way to him. Here's what I hope God sees. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll make a list and say, well, Lord, I have, I go to church on Sunday and I pray and I know the Bible, eh, pretty good, and I'm nice to people, and we have this list of things, but then it's also about what I'm not. Okay, I'm not as bad as that group of individuals over there and those things that my neighbors are doing or the, the way that guy at work talks or, and we begin to raise ourselves up in comparison to other people so we keep ourselves up somehow. And we hope somehow we're good enough that what God sees in me is at least better than most and somehow that's going to be enough. Well, Paul as he is addressing this group who's trying to add circumcision to salvation, basically, he calls them out. 
And he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul is taking his resume of godliness and saying, try and beat that, you guys. And probably very few, if any, could even come close, if that's your measurement, if, if that's your criteria, if this is what God expects of us, if this is what God is looking for, then Paul's got it. But what did Paul think about all of that? The confidence in, in rule-keeping, basically. In appeasing God somehow and being good enough for God. Lose myself in order to be found. And now understand, it's not easy to let go of ourselves and our ways and, and, and the lives that we've constructed for ourselves, believing somehow that this decision is going to make me happy. This relationship is going to change everything. This new job is, is, is going to bring me, give me purpose and joy. You know, whatever it might be, we, we fill in all of these, call them false gods, I guess. Things that we, we try to, to make ourselves, make something out of ourselves before others and before God, thinking that's going to be enough. And once you realize that it's not working, and you begin to dismantle that and let go of it, it's not easy. In fact, it's kind of like dying. And this is what Paul said about his own experience. But whatever were gains to me, that big list of his, his beautiful resume about being a really good Jew, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found, found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When Paul uses that word there in verse 8, it says, I consider them garbage. It's much stronger than that. Some English translations use the word dung. If we were a little less um, nice to one another, it would be a really stronger word that I certainly won't say here. And yet, that's, that's really the point that Paul is trying to get across. All that I had, that beautiful resume of being the perfect Jew, that all of my people strive toward, it's garbage. It's less than garbage. I don't want it anymore. How did he get to that place? One day he's going on, on this mission with these other men to go arrest Christians and throw them in jail. And he's got a letter giving permission to do it. He's on this road to a place called Damascus. And a light comes and a voice comes with that light and calls him out. And he says, Saul, Saul, that was his name, why do you persecute me? Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul being his Greek name. And then we have the story you can read about in Acts about his conversion. 
Now, it wasn't as if Paul woke up the next day and he said, okay, you know all those ways that I've adhered to, my pharisaical self, my law-obeying self, my zealousness to go and get these Christians? I don't want that anymore. It's gone. Goodbye. I'm now a believer. It does not happen that quick. It does not happen that easily. But it can happen. But you got to be patient. Because when we build our own, to use another metaphor, when we build our own tower, we're kind of proud of it. Because the tower puts us up. The tower helps us see and be hopefully higher than others. And then we're comparing our tower to their tower. And we have to get a little higher because theirs is getting higher. But when eventually you realize, that, you know what, all these towers, this is really not what this is about. This is certainly not what the gospel of Jesus is about. And you know what? Jesus is telling me, I don't even need the tower, but look at all the time and money and effort and years I poured myself into this. And you're telling me I didn't need to do it? And more than that, you're telling me, Jesus, that you loved me all along, even while I was fighting against you, even when I was going my own way and building life for myself, conjuring up my own purpose of my own existence in this world, ignoring you, maybe even not believing you exist at all, and you loved me the whole time, and I didn't have to do all of that? That's not easy to, to accept. That's not easy to let go of. It's the process of dying. It is an experience of losing. That's why I underlined that word so many times right here. Lost, 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 lost. To lose. When we have the pain of grief in our lives, it's loss. Things are different and won't ever be the same because of that person that's gone or other experiences of loss that we have to. And some of this stuff happens to us just because we're getting older, like me. <laughs> Ten years ago, I was, I, I would have joined um, Jason and Amada on that 5K last week, you know, because I was running. And um, I was enjoying it. I was running three, four days a week, uh, two, three miles each time. My dog was going with me. It was great. I'm in my 50s, yes. And I'm, I was in better shape than I was in my 40s, really. And maybe in my 30s, I'm not sure. But I was running. I was feeling good. I was healthy. And then my feet went bad. And then my knee went bad. And now, I, I couldn't run to the post office. That's a loss. That's hard to accept. And there's other lost experiences that, that, that we all have. And our choice there is, are we going to get depressed by it? And poor pitiful me, or use the blame game, well, it's not my fault, it's somebody else. Him, hey, them. I think that's why the political divide is so great today because people are looking for an easy place to throw their pain. An easy target. Well, I, rather than deal with stuff myself as best I can and, and find you know, good solutions together with others, let's just blame that group. Blame that political party. Blame that president, that senator, that township supervisor, whoever it might be. We just throw our pain at other people rather than dealing with our pain and allowing ourselves to experience the losses in our lives, the dyings in our lives. And that's what Paul's pointing to here. 
What do we want to know more than anything else? Because when you're in that moment of loss, when you're in that moment of pain, when things aren't the same and you know in spite of all your efforts will never be the same again, where does that leave you? What do you need to know for sure? What do you want? What do you seek after? And what we're looking for is to know that there's life to be found after I die to myself. Of course, we want the the assurance and, and faith to know that when I physically die, I'm going to meet Jesus on the other side. And I, you know, that, that's, that's our faith. That's what we believe. But between now and then, there are still other dying experiences that I think God is calling us into. It's a great, great verse. We'll close with this today. These two verses. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. What do you want to know more than anything? You want to know that your life matters? You want to know that God sees you. And what he sees in you is not just your failure. What he sees in you is, is, is not just your sins and your brokenness. And, and certainly that's usually, if we're honest, that's what drives us to God for the most part. At least initially. I'm broken and I got nowhere else to go. God help me. But he doesn't just see that. He sees you. And he sees in you, the person that he created and potential that you're never going to see in yourself and that no one else has maybe ever pointed out to you or thought possible in you. This is what Jesus sees in you. A resurrection as I let go of that which I've died to. Sometimes we choose that. Sometimes we realize, you know what, this particular habit isn't helpful to me. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to fight through it. I have this addiction. I'm going to deal with it. Let's time to get started. And that's also a process of dying, a process of losing and letting go. And as we do that, then on the other side, we see a new life emerge. But you won't see the resurrection until you've died. There's resurrections that happen all the time in us. So when it says in this verse, to participate in the sufferings of Jesus, participation in his sufferings, it's not that we're you know, getting nails on our hands and hanging on a cross. But he does know what suffering is. And whatever suffering you're going through, He's with you. He actually led the way. And he knows what it is to feel rejected. He knows what it is to feel um, the the pain of, of what other people can do and oppression. He knows what it is to be human, except for the failure part, and he sees that too and still loves you.
And that's the gospel message. That God in Christ loves us passionately and forever exactly the way we are. And He sees you. The you He died to save. Not the you that you present to everyone else and want to hopefully and hope that they think well of. Not the you that, that you fool yourself into thinking you are, but the true and real you deep inside underneath all the stuff. That you is beautiful. That you is, is blessed by God and just waiting to burst forth as you trust in Him. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. I'll close with this verse from John 17, verse 3. Notice that first line. This is Jesus speaking. Now this is eternal life. Just, just isolate that line for a moment. We think of eternal life, usually think, at least I do, okay, that means that when I die, I go to heaven. Live forever, praise God, amen. That's good. That's true, I believe that. But that's not the whole thing. So when Jesus says something like, this is eternal life, that's telling me, here's the truest and best definition of eternal life. And it says nothing about heaven. I'm not saying heaven isn't there. I'm just saying what we lead with. This is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now that knowing goes on into heaven, it goes on forever, but it's also here and now. This is eternal life. To know that God sees me and loves me right the way I am, broken as I am. Praise his name. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for seeing us for who we really are and loving us right there. Help us to put our confidence not in ourselves and what we built but in faith in you so that you can help us to continue to become the real me that you created. In your name, amen.